Anybody competitive out there? All right. A few of you admit it. Any of you are like, yeah, my spouse is competitive. They won't admit it, but my, my spouse is competitive. Anybody like to do a little bit of trash talking? No one's going to raise their hands to that. So, so I, I like to do a little bit of trash talking. It's, if we're playing a, a game as a family, like if I win, I'm going to let you feel it, right? <laughs> Doesn't matter if it's Candyland or Uno. It's like, yeah, I'm going to take that victory, right? But then there's those moments of uh, humility where you don't really live up to all of the trash talking. And the theme of this section of scripture is all mouths are stopped. Every mouth is stopped in humility before the holiness of God and the glory of God and realizing that we're a sinner. Remember Paul, like a lawyer, is systematically building the case to bring us to the conclusion that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 1, he dealt with the atheist, the person that just completely rejects the existence of God, the knowledge of God, guilty before the Lord, because creation itself declares who God is. But chapter 2 really deals with the person who would consider themselves to be moral, consider themselves to, to be religious, the nation of Israel that feels because we have the law, because we have circumcision, then we must be right with God. So no matter what your background is, no, no matter if you look back at your life and go, man, I completely rejected the Lord, or you're at this place where I tried to be good. I tried to earn salvation through works. We're all humbled in realizing our need for a Savior. All of our mouths are, are stopped. Verse 17, indeed you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. So they're called Jews and Jews means praise to God. This is the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, but they rest on the law. Now, what's the point of the law? The the point of the law, the Old Testament, specifically the five books of Moses, is for the purpose of bringing us to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, a a schoolmaster that drives us to Christ. But they're in this place where they're resting and boasting on the fact that they have the law, thinking that because they have the law, that that makes them right with God. There's a warning here that sometimes we can rest in being religious. We can rest in going to church. There might be someone that says, I'm, I'm right with God because I go to church. I'm right with God because I read my Bible. And the point of, of the scriptures is to bring us to a relationship uh, with Christ, not just simply trusting in religion without a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I understand this because I grew up in a Christian home. I was born on a Sunday. The next Sunday I was in church. Whenever the doors of the church uh, were open, we were there. I went to an old school uh, church till about junior high where there was Wednesday night, there was Sunday school, and then there was the main service where the children sat with adults, and then there was Sunday nights, and I was just bored to tears, right? It's like, I feel like I'm spending half my life at church, right? My heart got hard to the Lord. I, I went to Christian school, K to 12, heard all of the stories, could recite it to you. And I I think there was a a trust as a young age that Christ was my savior, but I had no relationship uh, with the Lord till till I was in in high school. It was just the the outward facade of, well, I'm born in a Christian family. I I go to church. I'm trusting in those things instead of trusting in the gospel. 
In verse 18, and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. So there's this knowledge of what God wants. There's a knowledge of who God is. And they approve those things that are excellent. And they're being instructed out of God's law. What's displaced is the trust in themselves instead of the trust in Christ. And are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are darkness. This is an amazing thing to assume that, yes, I'm a guide to those who are blind. Yesterday, our daughter Addie, she had a track meet in Pueblo, and there was some time before her event. So we were hanging out there in downtown Pueblo. My son and I were walking on the sidewalk, and there was a a lady who was blind, and she had a friend who was guiding her through uh, uh, downtown. And I was thinking, man, that's something you got to take really seriously. Like if you're guiding somebody who, who can't see, that person who's blind is really trusting you, right? It's a good friend. It's, it's a family member. You're not going to steer me wrong. And here they are assuming the nation of Israel, the religious leaders, yeah, we're a, we're a guide to those who are blind. We're a light to those who are in darkness. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. They're assuming that they're instructing the foolish. They're assuming they're teaching those that are new in the Lord. And they have a form of knowledge, but yet there's the missing component of being born again, of being saved, of having the Spirit of God living inside of them. Paul warns about perilous times in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And one of the things that he says is having a form of godliness, but denying its power. So there's this form of of godliness, but there's no true power. And that's religion apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a form, there's an outward facade of of godliness, but there's no power. There's no genuine relationship with Jesus. There's no salvation in the gospel because trusting in themselves instead of trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross. You therefore who teach another do not teach yourself. You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? So we have this religious person, this scribe, this Pharisee who's who's teaching, and there is a danger that comes in teaching because we assume, because I taught it, I must be living it. I know it well enough to where I can share it with someone else, But then we forget to first be a receiver. This is obviously a a danger for pastors. Pastors, we need to remember, I need to remember that the first one that needs to be instructed is myself. We can read the word with this lens of going, how can I teach this? Instead of saying, how can I teach this, is how can I receive this? How can I receive this into my own life? So this person who's religious, who's a critical moralist, they're feeling like they're right with God because of their works, because of their ability to teach the word, but they still haven't become aware of their own sin and seeing their need for Jesus as a savior. In verse 23, you make your boast in the law. Do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Boasting in the fact we've been given God's law, but they're not seeing the fact that they're breaking the law. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, 
as it is written. Gentiles, non-Jewish people, they see through this facade. They see through the scribes and the Pharisees. Who is Jesus the hardest on? The scribes and the Pharisees. And the Gentiles, they see that something is missing there. And the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the Jewish people not knowing Christ as their Savior and having a genuine relationship with Christ. And I think people are, are smart and they can observe, yeah, there's something authentic there. There's something real there. There's a humility. There's a sincere faith in Christ. And they can also tell when we're playing this game of, of religion. Circumcision is brought up for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if any uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted to him as circumcision? One of the things that rabbis would teach was circumcision in and of itself makes you right with God. Here's a few quotes that come from rabbis. Circumcision saves you from hell. That's quite a statement. God swore to Abraham that no one who is circumcised should be sent to hell. God gave circumcision to Abraham and his descendants as a sign of their covenant to God. It was never just to be an outward act, but it represented a heart that was changed by God. Jeremiah chapter 4 talks about the foreskin of the heart being cut away, a life that is separated for God. But what happened to the children of Israel over time is it just became a rite of passage. If you're circumcised, you're good with God. And here Paul's saying, no, it's not just that you're circumcised. If, if you're circumcised and you break the law, then you become uncircumcised. This is the most insulting thing that you could say to a Jew, a Jewish male. You're uncircumcised. And Paul's pointing out the fact because you broke the law that you indeed need a savior. The warning for us is we need to be careful to think that by association or some rite of passage that we're right with God, whether it's church membership or weekly attendance or baptism, I got my church membership. If you're wondering at Rocky Mountain Calvary, do we have church membership? The answer is no, we, we don't. Because the reason that you receive Christ as your Savior, you're a member of the body of Christ. And it's a lot bigger than Rocky Mountain Calvary. And some ask, well, what about biblical accountability and church discipline? We still practice that, right? But so many people are like, well, I'm a, a member at such and such a church, so I'm going to heaven. And Jesus is like, Really? Is it membership in a church uh, that saves you? When we have baptisms here at RMC, it's one of my favorite services. It's a time of real celebration. And as we're explaining baptism before uh, the service, what I often express, always express, is if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you haven't believed that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, inviting him to be the Lord of your life, then you're simply getting wet. And there's a lot nicer places to get wet. Our baptismals, they're just painted horse troughs. I don't know if you've noticed that. I'm sure that you have. And I always feel bad for the person that's like 20th in line in baptism. You probably want to be like in the first five. Because after like 15 people or so, it's like, man, this water is not looking this good, right? It's like, 
these people must really want to get baptized. Like, so baptism signups are going way down as I'm sharing this, right? <laughs> but if you do know Christ as your Savior, even though the water is not so pleasant, this is a powerful symbolism of what Christ has already done in your life, that you're buried with Christ and risen with in him. So I'm going to endure the horse trough. I'm going to endure this maybe not so pleasant water because Christ has commanded me to uh, be baptized. So circumcision or, or some other association without a relationship with Christ does not result in salvation. Verse 17, and will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. And this work of circumcision points to the work that Jesus does in our hearts through the gospel. Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the Godhead lives bodily form. And you have been given the fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised and putting off the sinful nature, not with circumcision done by the hands of men, but the circumcision done by Christ. So we get into chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to read through to verse 20. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Is there any value then in being an Israelite? Is there any value then to circumcision? Verse 2, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God, or the word of God. Paul says absolutely there's a blessing that comes to the nation of Israel because it was to you that God gave his word. It was to you that God gave the law that points to Jesus Christ. In verse 3, for what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written. The Jews' unbelief did not cancel out God's faithfulness. Some might look at the nation of Israel and see the nation of Israel's failure and think to some degree, well, God failed. No, God was faithful. God was the one who was true. It was the nation of Israel that fell short. This is an important lesson for us. And please listen to this. Don't judge God's faithfulness through the lens of man's unfaithfulness. Does that make sense? And so many times we look at the church that's fallen and sinful and broken or a brother and sister in Christ and we try to judge God through that lens of believers. And believers are a blessing in our lives, but believers are sinners as we're going to continue to read. So we want to look at God himself. We want to look at Jesus revealed. Read the Gospels and, and look at who Christ is and see his faithfulness because man's faithfulness doesn't cancel out God's faithfulness. Continuing in verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say then? Is God unjust who afflicts wrath? I speak as a man, certainly not. 
for then how will God judge the world? Some would say, well, my unfaithfulness, it magnifies God's faithfulness. My unrighteousness magnifies God's holiness. So how can God hold me accountable for sin? And Paul shoots down that argument and says, certainly not. God is the one who is faithful and it's his rightful place to judge the world. So we break the law and we go before a judge and a jury and we're guilty and our lawlessness does highlight the need for a judicial system. So the fact that we've done something criminal and it highlights the judicial system, does that make the judicial system wrong for holding us accountable? Does that make the judge wrong for holding us accountable? Does that make the jury wrong for for holding us accountable? Absolutely not. So our sinfulness doesn't make God unjust for holding us accountable for our unrighteousness. In verse 7, For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as We are slanderously reported as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. So there were those trying to undermine Paul going around saying, well, Paul's just encouraging you to sin because of this message of the gospel that we're saved by grace through uh, the blood of Jesus. If my sin highlights my need for Christ and him to, to die for my sin, then why don't I just do evil that people will understand how magnificent Christ is. And I suggest to you this morning, we've already done enough evil to magnify the goodness of Christ. Like, we don't need to add to that bucket. You know, that, that bucket's full on its own. And again, Paul shoots down this argument. Verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both the Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. One of the reasons that Paul is laying this out is because there's a Jew-Gentile divide in the church, the church of Rome. You would have Jews that have gotten saved, Gentiles that have gotten saved, and they're now brothers and sisters in Christ. And apart from the church, these two groups would not hang out together. They would not even sit and eat together. And even though they're believers, there's still some divide that's in their heart. You may have thoughts like this from the Gentiles where they look at the the Jews and they go, man, these guys are legalistic jerks. You know, they, they walk around thinking that they're so prideful, they're Jewish, they're proudful of their heritage, they have the law, they're, they're circumcised, they're always making us feel kind of like second class uh, citizens, right? And they need to understand, hey, the, the Jews are sinners that need a savior just in, in the same, same way as us. So, so the Gentiles could be looking down at the Jews, but then the Jews could be looking down at the, the Gentiles. And the Jews need to understand There is equal footing at the foot of the cross, meaning we all need the forgiveness of God to the same degree in our lives, no matter what our background is. And if there's anything in our hearts in that regard, like, I know I'm a sinner, but that person over there, wow, really big sinner. Or I know I'm a sinner, but but that people group over there, they're, they're really big sinners. And the message of all of this is, Now, we're all really big sinners because God sees our heart. 
So some of you may have a, a background where your life before Christ, you didn't know anything about the Lord and your life was off the rails. And some of you from the world standard may have had a more of a moral life, right? Either way, God sees our heart. And if we're angry with someone in our heart, we're a murderer. If we lust after someone in our heart, we're an adulterer. So no matter what the background is, Jew or Gentile, we are in a place where we're all under sin. In verse 10, we see from verse 10 down to verse 18 that Paul quotes from Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Isaiah. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understand. There's none who seeks after God. Jesus is the one who finds us. Jesus is the one who pursues us in our sinfulness. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. God does love us, but the reason that he loves us is in spite of us. It's not that we're profitable to the Lord. It's not that God's like, man, I don't know how I'm going to do this work without you or I need you. In his grace, he, he loves us in spite of us. The way that sin is seen in verse 13, their throat is an open tomb with their tongues. They've practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. How do you need to know that all are sinners? Just examine our words. Out of our mouth, the heart speaks. And our mouth causes us to be guilty before God, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This brings us to the conclusion of this section of Romans. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be guilty before God. This is really important. A verdict that's given to every single person because of the law to show us that we're guilty before the Lord. God knew what he was doing in giving us his word. If he didn't give us the law, we would tend to think, man, I can save myself through my works. God says, okay, well, let me just give you 613 laws. Let's see how you do with that. Well, let's shorten it down to the Ten Commandments. How do you do with that? And our mouths are stopped. For any of you that have this mindset when it comes to a relationship with God in regards to your eternity, if you think that you can be saved by your works, our works can never cleanse us from our sin before a holy God. That's why we need a savior. That's why we need Jesus to die upon the cross for us. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Through the deeds of the law, no one is going to be justified. Remember, justified is a legal forensic term. We're going to talk about it more next week to be declared righteous. You're righteous. No one is going to be justified through the works of the law. It's impossible. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is also important as you read the scriptures and you look at God's holiness and you look at his standard is it should reveal to us our sin and show us our need for a savior. 
The solution is Jesus. The solution is what he has done for us. Now, we're going to stop here this morning. So you really, really got to come back next week. Like, like if you end up finding a, a new church and God's leading you to a new church, the Lord bless you, but at least come back one more week, right? Please read ahead for the end of Romans chapter 3. I want to give us a, a quick sneak peek. Look at Romans 3.23 and Romans 5.8. Romans 3.23 and, and Romans 5.8. This is the conclusion of the matter. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. The standard is God's glory, not comparing ourselves to one another. So we're guilty before a holy God. But then look at Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If I could get your attention for just about five more minutes and bring some application is the first application for us this morning is to see the reality of our sin in a greater way. For those that haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, to realize our sin is a real issue before a holy God, repent and turn from sin and believe Jesus died and rose again and be saved. As we Head into worship. There'll be a ministry team available here in the front, a team available online, and you come and let us know, I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. It's a free gift of grace through faith, turning from sin. Yes, God, I'm a sinner, but I believe you died for me and rose again. For those that already know Christ as our Savior, we do need to be reminded, man, I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. The, the weight of my sin is, is very real. But then that brings us to the next application. You're a sinner who's loved by God. You're a sinner who God loves. He loves you enough where he demonstrated his love toward you. And while you're in your sins, he sent his son to die for you. So we realize the depth of our depravity, but we don't stay there. We also realize the depth of God's love and rejoice in his forgiveness. Now, this is the last application. If we really believe that God's word is true and that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, why are we so shocked when others sin against us? Right? We seem so surprised. Hear me out on this. Is your family... Whatever your family demographic looks like, married, married or single, your family was not created to be your savior. And you're going to be disappointed if you expect your spouse to be your savior. If you expect your kids to, to be your savior. As wonderful as Rocky Mountain Calvary is, this body of believers is not your savior. Amen? Right? If you're expecting a, a church family to fulfill you, no. Only Christ can fulfill you. So when we sin against one another as a family, when we sin against each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, not to justify sin, but we shouldn't be so shocked. It's like, oh, I can't believe it. You sinned, right? Of course. 
You're a sinner. You, you need a savior, just like I'm a sinner who needs a savior. When we're in the community with our family members that are unbelievers, and they're sharing things that are so contrary to God and his word, we shouldn't be so shocked because they don't know Christ. They're, they're not a believer. And so the importance of, okay, God, I am loved by you. I'm forgiven by you. The, the gospel has been applied to my life. Then how do I live out the gospel in relationships? How do I, I live out the gospel with this type of unconditional love where truth is not compromised? Please hear me on that. Truth is, is not compromised. As we're loving unbelievers, it's, it's very important to, to address sin. God, God addresses sin. But to point to the gospel, the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came out to seek and to save sinners. Like you, like me. And so may the love of God explode in our hearts, in our own lives, and in relationship with others. Sound good? All right, let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we ask through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would seal the things that we've read, that you would cause your word to, to bear fruit in our lives, that we would go deeper in understanding our sin, but even more importantly, understanding your work, Jesus, as our Savior, that you would draw people to you that don't know you and help us to, to love in a way that reflects you. Would you fill us with your spirit to give us that supernatural love? We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.